Welcome to AZ Politicast. I'm Steve Goldstein. On Friday, former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor passed away in Arizona at the age of 93. I was fortunate enough to interview former Justice O'Connor on a couple of different occasions, and on this special edition of AZ Politicast, I'll present those conversations. One of those included the late General and former Secretary of State, Colin Powell. This edition will also include an interview with Linda Hirschman I did a number of years ago when she wrote the book Sisters-in-Law about former Justices O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This edition of AC Politicast starts now. The first conversation you'll hear is one I conducted with the late Justice O'Connor nearly a decade ago as she was expressing her passion about iCivics. Since resigning from the bench, Justice O'Connor has focused on getting kids to know more about how federal, state, and local governments work. Her iCivics project helps kids test their knowledge through a computer program. Justice O'Connor told me too many states have removed civics from their school curricula. They can't name the three branches of government. They can't name the president. There's very little understanding. It seems to me that one of the most important things we can do for young people when they're in school, is to make sure that they know and understand our structure of government, Mm -hmm. federal, state, and local, how it works and how they're part of it. This is really critical for us. So whatever we're not doing, we have to pick up the reins and go. Part of it probably is a result of our more recent focus on math and science and some deficiencies there. Mm -hmm. Those things need attention, no question. Mm -hmm. I'm all for it. But we must not stop teaching young people what I call civics, how our government is structured and how it works. That's a lifelong requirement. And so that's why I started this iCivics program with an effort to have video clips Mm -hmm. that are engaging for young people and keep them interested And in the process of having games, they learn how the government works and how they're part of it. How much are we missing as a community and as a country, and how much does it contradict our own history when we're not teaching kids more about civics? When our nation was formed, we ended up with a quite impressive constitution and system of government. Mm -hmm. That was good. And about 30 years later, people began to realize that if they didn't teach young people about this system, that it would be meaningless. So that was why we got public schools in America. Today, we're very interested in making sure our young people are better in math and science and things like that. And in the process, many states have stopped making civics a requirement. The results of that are shocking. Maybe half of young people can't name the three branches of government, can't say what they do, how they're part of it. We can't have that. It's just totally wrong. And so there is a lot of catching up to do. Do you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren? I have six grandchildren, no great-grandchildren yet. And how do you feel about what they learned in school and what they know about the government? They're learning now, and I hope it's going along. You, You aren't sure, but I hope. 
that they're getting proficient. Do they see you as, as more than grandma? Can they come to you and ask you for, for questions like well, that? Well, they can, but they don't. <laughs> do you wish they did? I, w- I do wish <laughs> they did. You're a strong supporter of civil conversation, and you were on the Supreme Court for more than a quarter century. And a lot of people think, well, there must be some real contentiousness there. But how important is civil conversation when it comes to making a decision amongst the nine justices? That's an important part of serving as a justice, to maintain a cordial relationship among all the justices. That's very important to do because you are inevitably going to have issues on which people differ, and you'll be in agreement with one on one issue and in disagreement on another. But you have to keep the relations cordial at all times and be willing to discuss intellectually and decently all of the issues. That was the late Justice O'Connor talking about her passion for iCivics, a program that is still going strong. Up next, an edited conversation I had with the late General Colin Powell, who is being honored by Justice O'Connor and the O'Connor Institute. We'll hear from both of them during this conversation. If you are not able to have civil conversation within a society, then you can't have a civil society. It's one thing to be adversarial with somebody else. It's one thing to have a disagreement. Our nation was created on the basis of disagreement. But our nation was also created on the basis that as hard as you fight for your position, you have to keep it civil because at some point you have to compromise in order to gain a consensus to keep the country moving forward. And to some extent, I think we've been losing that here in our country. And I'm so pleased that the justice has seen fit to devote so much of her time and energy to putting this back into the national debate, that we have to start speaking civilly to each other, not just to be nice people, but to get a consensus, to gain compromise. If you're not talking civilly to one another, you know, then you become enemies. I tell young people when I talk to them that they have to learn how to disagree agreeably, that this is critical to getting the job done as we go forward in life. How do they do that? Because so many of us in our younger ages are are very immature that way and want our argument to be the right one. So you have to advise them, don't yell and shout at each other, speak in a, a civil tone. I think it begins in the home. Children have to be taught respect for others. Children have to be taught to get along with others. Children have to understand that they are not necessarily every day the center of the world as another kid out there. And that has to be reinforced in our churches, in our temples, in our synagogues. Uh, And it has to be reinforced in school. And I think one way to reinforce it in school is to make sure that children are disciplined in schools. So they can't just run around and scream, but they have to pay attention to what other youngsters are saying. Um, And I think that's so important. The word that was drilled into me when I was a young kid that I don't hear used that much anymore. Mind. Mind your manners. Mind your Oh, yes. Mind. Remember that one? Uh, Mind your parents. You don't hear it much anymore. Mind your parents. But that is the word we used. Yes, the word we used. And youngsters, uh, too many youngsters don't understand this. And they're not being raised in an environment where respect is inherent in the environment. It's being reinforced in in the environment. With civil discussion, the context of our current political scene, which everyone decries because no one gets along, and, and we hear about. I think the one example that's brought up a lot is President Reagan with uh, Speaker O'Neill, and, and even though they disagreed, they, they still got together. Uh, are we at a point, do you think, where it's getting harder and harder? And just so, kind of, please chime in on this as well. 
harder to get the sides who disagree to disagree agreeably and still realize we're all mammals, we're all human beings, we should get along, as opposed to the issues taking precedent. Right now, I think we're in a, in a bad place in our political life. In all of my years, I've never seen it quite this bad, where people are moving to the extremes, the left and the extremes of the right, and just throwing grenades at each other. Um, and not spending that type of quality time, such as the Reagan O'Neill story, to just sit and listen to each other and try to gain respect. And they are forced into these extremes by the nature of our modern communication system. And interest groups are only interested in winning. Even if they know they're going to lose, they'd rather lose than compromise. And, and, it's, and it, is, it is fueled by constant attention from television, constant attention from the bloggers and the internet, and the race to get ratings and things like that. I think it's also fueled by the huge sums of money that are in our political system for elections or for one group or another seeking some advantage in the tax code. And somehow we are going to have to correct this. And people ask me, well, how? I said, well, Superman ain't coming. Uh, it's who you vote for. And if you want to figure out how we're going to fix this, we, the people, have to fix it. Well, we can do that in other ways, too. As citizens, when we go to uh, talks and meetings with leaders who are getting out of hand on what they're asking, as citizens, you have to stand up and speak up and say, we don't think that helps. We think if you would learn to reach agreeable solutions, we'd all be better off. I mean, citizens can do that, and it's very effective when they do. The late Justice O'Connor and the late General Colin Powell talking about civil conversation in public life. I'll close out this special edition of the AZ Politicast podcast with a discussion I had with author Linda Hirschman. She had just written the book Sisters-in-Law, which talks about the professional and personal relationship between the late Justice O'Connor and the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court when Ronald Reagan selected her and the Senate approved the nomination in 1981. Justice O'Connor remained the sole female on the high court until Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined her in August of 1993. In the new book, Sisters-in-Law, author Linda Hirschman writes about the impact Justices O'Connor and Ginsburg have had on the legal system and, in turn, the entire nation. She also writes about the mutual respect the two had for each other, even as they weren't social friends. Now, Linda, looking back, did Justice O'Connor's approach and the perception of her as a non-ideologue who worked well with others make it possible for Justice Ginsburg to make it on the court? Yes, I absolutely believe that Sandra Day O'Connor for many reasons, made it easier for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to follow her. Certainly Sandra Day O'Connor is not a mild-mannered person, but she, did, <laughs> but, but, she, but she does come across, I think, as someone who's, um, I think people have a perception of her that maybe she is a little bit more staid, perhaps, than she really is, but was that something that played into it, or was it the way she performed as a justice that made it more possible for Justice Ginsburg? It's more the former than the latter. It's so wonderful to be interviewed by someone who comes from Arizona and knows the real story because she has a public image of being a, a rather more conventional person and player and thinker than she really is. Um, but I think that, that her gift for 
getting along with more powerful men, which was extraordinary. And her ironclad self-discipline so that she made no demands and she caused no trouble made it much easier for the next woman to be second. Her history in politics in Arizona was a gift to the court and helped the court because they didn't have very many practicing politicians among their numbers at any time when she was on there. And I think she brought some wisdom that the court benefited from. Um, it, it's even arguable that having the first woman be a Republican who was constantly finessing the line between her party's increasing conservatism on the issue of women and um, her role as a representative of women on the court helped so that um, she was tracking and it made a space for the person who was sailing more directly into the wind to follow her. For those who, who maybe didn't realize how intelligent and how, frankly, how tough uh, she is as far as uh, uh-huh. being strong-willed, so was there right. a surprise later on that, that she became so impactful, even to people who don't follow the court that much, and they would say, oh, it's, quote-unquote, the O'Connor court, because she had so much impact because she was able to perhaps influence some of her colleagues. So she had the advantage of having an incremental case-by-case jurisprudence, which enabled her to avoid predictability. So she became the desirable swing vote after Powell left in 1987. She became the desirable swing vote in part because her jurisprudence was not ideologically and fixed or in a fixed in a partisan way as hard as her colleagues were. So part of it's just politics. Her belief system and her thinking about how the society should be governed was more in the middle between the two camps on the court. It could have been a man or someone with a very different character. If they had that belief system, it would have put them in the middle. It was Powell before it was O'Connor, and it was Kennedy after it was O'Connor. So part of it is just happenstance in that way. But she was extraordinarily skilled and tough-minded about wielding the power that that brought her so that, for instance, she would hold off agreeing to join an opinion that was circulating in order to make the opinion writers move heaven and earth to capture her critical fifth vote. She would wait to let them know whether they had her or not. She would bargain for what she wanted in the opinions by threatening to concur. And if you're the critical fifth vote and you concur, then that means that you're the only vote. Because mm-hmm. the four justices that agree are not a majority. She would use that very skillfully, and sometimes she would threaten to go over to the other side. In the book, you write about one particular decision and opinion that really seemed to illustrate a connection between Justices O'Connor and Ginsburg that was especially vital for Justice Ginsburg. Her, her landmark decision is something called uh, United States versus Virginia, the VMI, the Virginia mm-hmm. Military Institute case. 
She only got to write that opinion because O'Connor had said, don't give that to me, that should be Ruth's. So it was a real act of sisterhood that O'Connor did that. I would like you to describe in the book as well what you say about when uh, Justice Ginsburg was reading her opinion. Right. So Ginsburg got to write the opinion. We now know. We did not know at the time. We now know because of what O'Connor did. And on opinion day, the judges who write the opinions get to read a little bit of them out loud in court. And Ginsburg was reading a little bit of the VMI decision, which is quite a long decision, in court. And in the part she chose to read, she included a reference to Justice O'Connor's decision in a sex discrimination case from 15 years before when O'Connor first went on the court. Um, I always think that people who doubt O'Connor's deep feminist credentials should think she just arrived on the court in 1981, and she was the swing vote, the decisive fifth vote in a very important sex discrimination case. So Ginsburg cites that case. It's called Hogan. And then she stops, and she, uh, Ginsburg, who's not very demonstrative, lifts her eyes from the papers that she's reading from and looks directly across the bench at Sandra Day O'Connor and nods. And there's a moment when they both, acknowledged the legacy that they had been building together, and then Ginsburg went back to reading the rest of the excerpt from her decision. It's a beautiful moment, and I think that that small bits of evidence like that reflect that these two women had a very high regard for each other because underneath their superficial differences, they were actually profoundly similar. Has their impact made it so more women want to get into that profession and the more women are able to get into the profession? O'Connor's impact, which is very, very, very big, is that she showed that a woman could attain the highest level of the profession. And it's just like the election of Barack Obama. It It gave everybody below her hope that the gates were not forever closed to them because of their gender. Um, There was a time when she was the most famous woman in the world, and and, uh, people, you couldn't walk down the block with her and not sign a thousand autographs and stuff. Um, Ginsburg actually really opened the gates. I mean, she made it legally possible for women to demand to be treated equally so that um, in a in the most graphic way, there was a case from the 19th century where the Supreme Court had said that a state could say that women weren't allowed to become lawyers. Mm-hmm. That case was still good law when Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood up to argue her first case or to brief her first case in the Supreme Court in 1971. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually got the court to apply the Equal Protection Clause to women and made it illegal for states to keep them from practicing law. So that's an enormous accomplishment. Linda Hirschman, she was the author of the book Sisters-in-Law about the professional and personal relationship between late Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thanks for listening to this special edition of AZ Politicast in honor of Sandra Day O'Connor, who passed away on Friday in Arizona at the age of 93. 
In addition to having the chance to interview Justice O'Connor on a few occasions, I'll also remember the special birthday dinner where she happened to be at the next table over at the since-closed restaurant Rancho Pino in Scottsdale. Just another memory of living in Arizona for about four decades. If you have any suggestions for future editions of AZ Politicast, please email me at azpoliticast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Goldstein.